back in the day, it, a creative career wasn't considered a career that was going to get you anywhere. And look at the world around us now. Look at look at all the creatives and all the digital designers and and Apple and all the apps and and everything. You've got to have such a creative mind to to be in work like that. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today, I'm speaking with Louisa Seaton, a photographer who grew up in Kenya, but has spent more than 18 years living here in Australia after falling in love with our blue skies and wide open spaces that remind her of home. I actually met Louisa soon after she arrived in Sydney, and I've loved following her career over the years, from stepping out on her own as a freelance photographer, to her adventurous travels around the world, to starting her latest project for women called Sacred Feminine Photography. As a classically trained fine art, lifestyle and documentary photographer, Louisa's work is absolutely stunning and has been featured in top international publications, including Africa Geographic, CNN, and Vogue Living. I wanted to find out what it's taken to succeed as a freelance photographer, and what she's setting out to achieve with her new venture, which celebrates and empowers women of all body shapes and backgrounds. Here's my chat with Louisa Seaton. So, Lou, you've been living here in Australia for many years now, but you're originally from Nairobi in Kenya. So can you tell us a bit about your background and what it was like growing up in Africa? Yeah, I grew up in Nairobi in Kenya and it was, um, I, I feel like I had a very fortunate upbringing. I was, it was a very, very free childhood. I was exposed to a lot of culture and lots of uh, different communities from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So I feel like I was, um, I wasn't shielded from anything. It's when I was um, a child, there was quite a segregation between the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor. And nowadays, there's actually a, a wonderful middle class that's risen up in Nairobi. So the balance, it's not so unbalanced. There's a lot more wealth in Nairobi now. And so it is mm. quite a bustling city. Um, and growing up in Kenya was just, it was beautiful. I, you know, growing up in Africa is a lot like growing up in Australia. You've got wide open spaces, it's warm weather, blue skies, lots of uh, interesting wildlife, a lot of nature. I really loved it. And I know your dad was a bush pilot. So what kind of adventures did you used to go on with him as a kid? Yeah, from an early age, I was flying alongside him in his light aircraft. And that really probably spurred the adventurous spirit in me. And uh, we would go to some really, really remote villages in the middle of nowhere. And it got me very used to seeing and being in Indigenous communities. And I really, really loved it. And I always remember admiring the women and how they dressed and the way they they were so proud and elegant and they're wearing all their beaded jewellery and, and you can read the jewellery on them and it will tell their story, whether they're circumcised, whether they've got a, a son who's married, whether they've got children, it's all written in their jewellery. And so I, you know, really love that. 
And when did you first pick up a camera and what sparked your interest in photography? I was always very, very arty at school. Not so much photography, but very, very into the arts. And I studied fine art at uni. And photography was something that I I just enjoyed. But I never actually thought I was going to become a photographer until I ended up at uni. And my kind of course was very classical in the way it was taught. And um, the first year we had to just draw and training our eyes to see in light and shadow and texture. And so for a whole year, I would draw for about eight hours a day. And then in the second year, you chose what, what avenue you wanted to go down. And it was either graphic design or sculpture or painting or photography. And I just knew that photography would probably, I'd probably be able to get a job. <laughs> and if you go down the avenue of being a painter, you you really have to be good to to get anywhere. And graphic design wasn't that big in those days. And sculpture, I just wasn't really into it. So I ended up going down the photography route. So you were saying, that's interesting that you were saying that you did see photography as a viable career, because I think it's, you know, for a lot of people, they might assume that it is a hard field to make a living out of. I mean, when you finished uni, what did you do work-wise um, initially? You, you moved to London, I think, and then obviously later to Australia, but what were you doing work-wise in those early days? Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I did a lot of work that was not photography orientated whatsoever. <laughs> and in London, I mean, I did reception work. I did all sorts of work and I would save as much money as I possibly could in order to leave London and go and travel. So I would save up all my money and then go and travel South America and and then I'd run out of money and then I'd have to go back to London. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was really the university of life for me, you know, in those early days. And I wanted to get as much traveling in as possible because I just loved it. And I, it was such a creative outlet for me. And I would always take my cameras with me and I would just shoot and shoot and shoot. And yeah, I just, I was addicted to to traveling. So back in those days, I did anything that would make me money in order to be able to travel and shoot. And then when I came to Australia, I was doing whatever I could. I was temping and then I ended up working in the corporate world for a while. Um, I worked in banking for a little bit. <laughs> I was an EA, but I kept on doing photography on the side. And so at one point I was working as an EA in this corporate finance, uh, West LB, it was a, a German bank. And I was working like crazy during the week. And then on weekends I was shooting weddings or any jobs that I could get. And then I'd photographed this woman's wedding who was, she was, a, I think, an art director of one of the big uh, agencies here in Sydney and creative agencies. And I'd photographed her wedding and she really, really loved my work. And I remember she got hold of me. I can't remember what the creative agency was now, but they had a brief where they needed a photographer to photograph um, it was for Cadbury's chocolates and they needed someone to photograph um, families. And because I'd done such a good job at her wedding, they called me up and I was still working at the bank at this time. 
And they were like, look, we've got this uh, job. We'd love for you to be the photographer. And I'd never worked for a creative agency before. And I, it was over a three-month period and I could work on weekends. It was just perfect. And um, I would fly all around the country to um, photograph these different people for the campaign. And I thought they were going to, I mean, luckily I didn't quote them. <laughs> they <laughs> offered me the budget and I nearly fell off my chair because I would have, <laughs> I would have just you know, quoted them next to nothing. And it was like, it was like my salary at the bank. I couldn't believe it. And I was just dumbfounded that you could make that kind of money from being a photographer. And so I took the job, but then I was working during the week and it was a job that I wasn't loving. And then on the weekend, I was having to fly, you know, to Perth and do this shoot and then come back. And, and I was really struggling to keep up with, you know, life and then eventually mm. I was like, I can't go on like this. I've got to choose. And I really, really want to follow my passion and follow my heart. And so I made the decision to, now that I had this lump sum of money backing me up, because I was always quite worried to make that step into freelance because I didn't have a nest egg, you know, just in case I didn't get any jobs. And I just thought, this is the time to do it. I have to do it now. It's now or never. And I, I did it. And it was the best decision I ever made. So how did you go about establishing yourself as a freelancer full time? Do you know, it kind of, it literally one thing led to another. I started doing wedding photographies. I mean, I, I remember I was terrified doing my first wedding, but I just did it for free. They knew that I was only beginning with my wedding photography. And so I would do favors for friends and then there was not as much pressure. And then as soon as I started to get more confident, I would, my name kind of got handed around and I started doing more and more weddings and, and weddings were never what I wanted to do, but they were very, very good practice. And you, you don't really mess up. I, I think out of all the weddings I did and I did, God, it feels like hundreds um, I think there was probably only one that I ever messed up and my camera, I, I would work with two cameras and one of my cameras just stopped working. But oh, I, no. you know, I, I, I did have my other camera with shots on it as well. So it was not the end of the world, but it was, you know, for me to, you know, I was mortified, but I don't think they even realized. So I started with weddings and that built up my confidence and I started getting more and more work and it was all word of mouth. I never advertised a thing and I was starting to get paid really, really good money for that. And you've gone on to do all sorts of gigs over the years from commercial shoots to assignments, working with NGOs overseas. Is there a favourite job that sticks out in your mind? I do love um, getting jobs that are for organizations that are um, creating a positive impact on the planet or humanity. And so jobs that are, I've worked for charity organizations or NGOs who are creating change back in Kenya or around the world. And those have probably been my favorite jobs just because they mean so much to me. And, mm. um, you know, to be able to go back to Kenya and work in my home country and be shooting work that creating awareness is wonderful. That's probably my favorite, favorite thing to do. And I mm. want to get more of those jobs. <laughs> Anyone listening out there? 
<laughs> well, I think that's the holy grail. Having worked at a, an NGO myself, I know those gigs don't come up very often, but they're highly sought after for all the reasons that you just said. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you have been lucky to be able to combine your love of travel with your love of photography in so many different ways, which is the dream for a lot of people. I mean, I was looking at your website. I know you've been to Cuba, India, Papua New Guinea. You've done a few trips to the Burning Man Festival in the US and, as you said, many trips home to Africa. What would you say has been one of your favourite places to visit and shoot? Wow. Okay, look, I, I just I love um, going back to Kenya and being out in the wilderness and photographing different indigenous communities and also the wildlife. I, I'm not a wildlife photographer. I have a very kind of specific way I shoot wildlife um, in a very art sense and it's a very romanticized way of shooting wildlife in black and white. But I love being in the bush and I think that's really special for me. But I also love to photograph different communities and, and different places around the world. And I've got to say that because of my art background, Burning Man was just one of the most incredible places, like the most aesthetically beautiful places I've ever photographed because there was so much art and it was, it's just a, a very unique backdrop for photography. And uh, I just loved I loved photographing Burning Man, which is a massive uh, festival in America in the Nevada desert. And I mm. would say the biggest art festival in the world. And I've loved following your African adventures over the years. You've travelled to some extremely remote places in, in Kenya and more recently Ethiopia on your photography missions. I was particularly struck by the most recent trip that you did um, and I believe you were with your childhood friend who was a fellow photographer so it was two women traveling on their own through the remote north of Kenya camping out in the bush yeah. <laughs> can you share a bit about that experience and you know what kind of precautions you had to take and what you were doing out there well I whenever I go back home I, I always want to do a trip so I had an idea in my head that I wanted to go up to northern Kenya because I had photographed many of the different tribal groups in Kenya already, which uh, were in another region. And um, I really wanted to photograph the Gabra tribe and also the Samburu that I hadn't photographed. And the Samburu women are very much like the Maasai. They wear these beautiful big beaded necklaces and they're just gorgeous looking women. And the Gabra are found way, way up north near the border of Ethiopia. And they live in an area called the Chalbi Desert. And it's very, very dry. And my my friend, um, my childhood friend was also, she's actually writing a book on the north of Kenya. And it was very serendipitous. Like I had told my family I wanted to go on this trip. And my dad was like, okay, you can, you know, take the vehicle, but I didn't really want to do it a, a alone because I've done these trips before with just a driver and a guide. And I've, you know, landed in some very precarious situations because you are, you know, I am a woman on my own traveling. And because the villages I tend to visit are extremely rural, 
you know, I'm traveling for great distances and a lot of unpredictable situations and um, sometimes dangerous circumstances kind of get thrown into the mix. So I really didn't want to do another trip on my own. So we literally had a phone conversation and we were going within the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so we were in a, a four-wheel drive vehicle and we had radios um, so that we could communicate with someone back in Nairobi if we got into trouble. Um, but we were really in the bush and uh, we would employ everywhere we went. My friend Hillary had had contacts, so we, we call them fixers. So they are able to help us translate because it's not a matter of just rocking up in your vehicle and just walking into a village and photographing. You have to be very, there's a lot of etiquette that's involved and um, there's negotiations, big negotiations, and you've got to sit down and you have a cup of chai, the tea, local tea, and you sit and you talk to the chiefs for for a while. And we were camping under the stars. So we we went for two weeks and we were in the middle of nowhere and in the desert. And we would talk to the chief and then we would organize with the chief for someone to come and guard our camp. So we'd get an Ascari, we call them an Ascari in Swahili, uh, like a guard who had his bow and arrow and he would build a fire and fend off any hyenas or anything that wanted to come and kind of be curious. I mean, he did, yeah. one one of the nights we had a puff adder just go, puff adder is a really uh, poisonous snake in Kenya and that, that a puff adder kind of cruised by our camp which was not that great <laughs> we were really out in the elements you know and if it rained we had to just put a, a like a plastic sheet over our bed and but I love that kind of stuff you know I love camping I love being in the wilderness and it's it's in my blood you know growing up in Kenya I think there's a part of me that's just got a love for Africa like I, I have this love affair with Africa and I'll continuously go back forever and ever and what do you do? So you mentioned these are self-funded projects. Um, what do you do with the images that you take on these trips? So I generally afterwards, I, I have two kind of types of work that I photograph on these trips. One side of it is more documentary journalistic. So I can I come back with all the content and I would write stories and send them off to magazines like, you know, CNN or um, different magazines or, or newspapers. And the other side of it is I, my fine artwork. So I, I photograph it in a, in a kind of different format. And they're more beautiful artworks that people will buy to hang on their wall as wall art. And I have an online store that I sell these prints on and I exhibit that work. So it's all kind of, it's self-funded and I make my, my money up afterwards so I save up all the money I go on these trips and then afterwards I I release all the work to the world. And you're particularly drawn to photographing women why is that such a focus for you? I think because I really respect women not that I don't respect men but I really do find women to be very strong and dynamic and and sensitive and vulnerable and raw all at the same time and I think because I've been um, photographing women in, in rural indigenous communities for so long, I really see the strength in them. And a lot of 
while they go through a lot of hardship, I see this very like this like this inner strength and I just admire it. And so I feel like that's why I'm drawn to photograph women. And also I've just started a new project called the Sacred Feminine, which is it's all about celebrating the sacred feminine within you to empower women to express themselves and create art using their feminine form. And so because of, again, my fine art background, I photograph women in the nude and their body shapes become the work of art. And so it's, it's very beautiful work. And I find that it's very healing as well for a lot of people. Mm. Well, I noticed on your website you say women in general have no idea how beautiful they actually are and there's a natural tendency to only see our flaws, which I think is so true. What kind of response do you get when women see themselves in the type of photos that you take? Wow. Well, it's quite amazing actually because um, initially they're a little bit shy and then once we've, you know, taken a few shots, they're able to kind of open up and and they're not so vulnerable but they they then have this willingness to be truly seen and it's and it's really beautiful and when we finish doing the shoot and I show them some of some of the photographs and especially after I've edited them and then we sit down and we have like a meeting together they can't believe that that's what they look like because women don't look at themselves the way I might see them as a photographer because I'm not seeing their flaws I'm actually enhancing the body parts of them that that are quite beautiful and so if they for example if they like their boobs or or they don't like their their legs then I will shoot um, the my intention is to shoot the best angles so that you can see you know a part of their boobs but we we will kind of maybe camouflage a bit of their leg with a rock or something so it's it's bringing out the beauty and enhancing their feminine form and um, I think that when they when they do see the photographs and also after they've done the shoots it's a really empowering process and it's really yeah, it's a, it's really powerful because these these shoots that they're not they're not meant to be like some of them are sexy I should say but they're not it's not like a boudoir shoot boudoir is more kind of sexy and sensual and the, this is more using um, the feminine form right well I was interested to hear you say that it can be a very healing process for some women what are some of the stories behind the women who want their photo taken in this way. Well, I've had quite a few women who seek out my photography service because it's a safe space for them to kind of reconnect to their feminine. I've had a couple of women who I photographed prior to, um, so they're not maternity shoots, but they have been pregnant at the time of the shoot because they wanted to, a reminder of their their pre-birth body. And so I've done these amazing kind of art shoots with their body, but they were maybe only a a couple of months pregnant. And one of them lost the baby not long after we had done the shoot. And so, you know, for for her, the the shoot was very, very um, sacred. And then I've had another woman who had suffered quite a bit of trauma 
and she had been abused and it was her way of being wholly seen again because she she wanted to kind of claim back her power and she wanted to be naked in front of someone and you know she she chose me and my camera to do that in front of and i think it was a very kind of safe place for her to be seen in in all of her vulnerability and so that was very empowering for her and she now has the photographs uh, blown up and framed in her bedroom and i think it's it's just a reminder of how strong she is and how beautiful she is and then another um, friend of mine who's actually going through tomorrow she's having a, a mastectomy she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she's quite a young woman she's only in her early 40s and we had an incredible shoot it was probably the most um beautiful and intimate shoot that i've ever done of the sacred feminine because she was in her rawest form like she had no eyebrows she had no eyelashes she had no hair she was fully nude and she was it was all of her i just you know i really got to photograph her in her exquisite raw beauty and i think the photos you know it really did a lot for her because she she does have you know beautiful breasts and to know that she was going to lose them it's quite a um a process and she wanted to honor her body before her breast removal mm and i noticed that you shoot out in the natural environment so you know images on rock ledges over the ocean out in nature why did you choose that as your setting i i find that the whole sacred feminine shoots they're very healing and i think being in nature kind of enhances that healing and with the feminine especially i find that when i photograph on with a rock back like a cliff or rock backdrop it kind of brings out a masculine element within the photography so you've got these women who are very beautiful and vulnerable and um soft and feminine and then you've got these rocks that are the masculine they they're um they they symbolize you know i guess a hardness about them and a a, a strength in the rocks as well and in in a, a support that holds them and so i think there's a really nice combination there of of yin and yang and yeah i just think nature's such a beautiful way to photograph i think the studio would be a wonderful place to photograph these shoots but i think it's more impactful when it's in nature and i remember studying a when i was studying history of art we studied a um a painter i'm not sure where he was from but his name was friedrich and he would paint these massive landscapes huge landscapes nature like forests and rocks and mountains and then he would put a small person a little figure in the the painting and his whole thing was all about the enormity of nature and then you know how how small we are as humans compared to this massive kind of scale of nature around us and um i kind of like bringing that out in my sacred feminine shoots as well you've got these beautiful women who are strong but fragile and 
they're surrounded by this, you know, nature. It's, it's wonderful. So you've been working for yourself as a freelancer now for about 13 years, I believe. What would you say has been the biggest lesson that you've learned in that time in terms of running your own business? My goodness. I've actually had to be a jack of all trades. I never knew. I, I built three websites and I never, 10 years ago, I would have never imagined myself being able to build any websites. You know, I'm not, I didn't consider myself techie, but now I consider myself seriously techie. And, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, I, you really, being a freelancer, you've got to do a lot on your own. I probably should um, outsource a lot more, but I don't. Um it's a, it's a lot to carry. I, I think, you know, often I really do wish I had more support around me because I feel like I'm doing everything and I do want to focus on my photography, but I'm also doing all the admin and I'm doing all the marketing and I'm building websites. So I feel like I do a lot, but I also learn a lot in the process. Yeah, I think that's the benefit. I think for me, having set up quite a few things myself, yeah, it can. Some days you can just feel like you can't fit any more new learnings into your head. <laughs> but once you, you know, get into the rhythm and it becomes second nature, it's quite. Uh, you feel quite accomplished that you've taken on a new skill. Um, and what does a typical workday look like for you now? Or is there even such a thing in your world? My days are never predictable. Let's say that. You know, when I used to work the nine to five, they, it was it wasn't really my scene doing the nine to five, but I just I did find it very predictable. And now my days are so spontaneous. Like I'll wake up and I'll have a plan. So I usually wake up and I'll I'll go for a, a long walk and then I'll come back and I'll sit at my computer and I'll either be managing my website or writing invoices or um, editing and I can spend hours and hours in my little edit cave but my days can just fly by because I get so involved in in what I'm doing or I could be you know up at 5 a.m on a shoot so it's very very different and I always try and make time to meditate because that really balances me and keeps me centered so I never really, I, I'll always try and have structure to my day, but it never ends up being that way. Mm. Well, it's it. interesting because I think for a lot of people, you know, the idea of living this life as a nomadic photographer of sorts, you know, it sounds pretty idyllic and it definitely seems like that freedom and adventure suits you well. But what are some of the harder aspects of the job that we might not get to see? I think being... Well, I, I should say that I used to worry about this a lot more than I do now because I've just kind of surrendered to it, which is it's being a freelancer. You don't really you might have jobs coming in, but then there might be a drought period and then you're you can get quite anxious and, and worry when the next contract is coming in and or client. And I used to get quite worried about this, but I don't anymore because I've over the years, I always just land on my feet. And, you know, if there has been like the COVID period, I haven't been shooting much, but it's 
helped me really work on the back end of my business. So I've I've been working every day quite solidly and it's, it hasn't really made much difference to me because I work from home any anyway, you know. But mm. it, the, the difference is I just haven't been shooting as much. But I would say the tough the toughest is just not knowing when the next job will come and um, just remaining pretty calm in myself and just trusting that the universe is has got my back and some amazing jobs just going to come in when I need it. And it always does. It always does. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast, and you've certainly done that over your life and career, from pursuing your creative passions to your remote travel adventures to living in different places. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? Wow. Okay. (laughs) So look, quite a few things have come up for me, but I think one of my most poignant bravest moments was when I was on a trip in um, the south of Ethiopia, very close to the border of Sudan. I had, um, I was there because I was photographing a tribe called the Suri tribe. And um, it took me three days drive to get there from Addis Ababa, the the capital of Ethiopia. And um, this community lived in, in a very, very remote area the only people who really would go venture into this area would be anthropologists or, or photographers or journalists. Otherwise, it's very dense bush and there's no reason really to go there. So I had been in this village photographing and then I felt that my intuition was telling me that there was a bit of tension happening. I was with a guide and his negotiations with the community was starting to get a little bit strained. And so I just felt that we had to leave. And also they, they're they carrying AK-47s. It's quite a um, dangerous area. There's militia groups in the area. And instead of bow and arrows, because of um, the war in Sudan across the border over the years, they've had access to, to you know, guns like AK-47s. So everyone's carrying these guns around them. Um, And I just, I was starting to feel really uncomfortable. So I said to my guide, let's go. I think we need to get out of here. And so we did. And we ended up on this cross country track, trying to get to the lower Omo, which was about another day's drive. But we ended up in a, a really bad situation where our car got stuck in the mud and we spent like eight hours trying to dig it out and it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't budge. And then it got to nighttime and then we had torrential rain and eventually in the morning we had to abandon our vehicle and we were in militia territory. We had no protection or communication and we ended up like getting stranded for six days. And it was, it really was a matter of survival and it was one of the most challenging ordeals of my life. And I remember thinking I was very anxious and just going, Oh my God, how the hell am I going to get through this? And initially, I was really angry with myself, thinking, how did I get myself into this situation? I should have known better. Um, But then I was like, I can either be really angry with myself or I can conserve that energy and really be quite calm about the situation because there was nothing I could do except be very level-headed in it. And um, I got myself out of 
you know, my 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 anxious headspace by practicing gratitude. So I would be I was walking in this thick mud for hours and hours and hours. And I kept on repeating what I was grateful for. Like I'm grateful for my hat. I'm grateful for mm. my my water bottle, like all these things that I was grateful for that that I kept on having to repeat in order to kind of calm myself out of this this really dire situation that I was in. And I think that was the most crazy, crazy dangerous experiences of my life and probably the most courageous experience because I got myself out of it eventually. And it was, yeah, it was really, really traumatic. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds very traumatic. I mean, was there something that you learned or took from that experience to turn it into a positive or or see some silver lining out of it? I realised how strong I was. And I knew that if I had gotten through that, I could get through anything. And I realised that the photos I took on that trip, because I was so immersed in the story, um, I took some of the best shots of my life. And I ended up having an incredible exhibition. My work got distributed around the world. I got so much exposure, not really from the background story because I was very, I wasn't ready to really tell it for a a long time, but the photos just were so, um, they really had an extra essence of of magic in them that I, I think was really authentic and real. And I think what I was, feeling kind of somehow came out in the work that I was shooting during that period. And I think a lot of us find inspiration from other women. Who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? Do you know, I, I was uh, thinking about this and I I think it's the young girls, the generation of, of young women who are coming up now who are... Um, I'll just give an example in in the you know the uh, tribal villages some of the young girls that I've interviewed who have run away from their families because they were going to get circumcised and and I I don't I shouldn't say sold off but they are treated often as assets because they go through circumcision and then they're married off to much older men for a dowry and a lot of these young girls, because they're now getting a slight education, are realizing that they don't actually have to go through this. And Mm. they're running away from their families and they want to create a better life for themselves. And I find that these young girls are so brave. You know, they they probably only 12, 13 year olds and they're abandoning everything they know to, to save themselves. And I find that very, very courageous and admirable and also I feel like there's a lot of young women in the world today who are looking around them and seeing the destruction of the planet and wanting to do something about it and um, you know making their stand like Greta and I really you know I'm very proud of of young women like that. Yeah, she's phenomenal, isn't she? Yeah, very cool. And if there's someone listening out there who might be interested in a creative career like photography, maybe they're considering a career change or ramping up what is currently a hobby to a business, do you have any final tips for them? 
Yes, I think you have to believe in yourself and don't like chase your dream and don't give up on your vision because you can be talked out of your dreams when other people feel like they're they've got your best interest at, at heart. You know, I, I feel that, you know, parents might try and talk children out of their dreams because they feel that they're not going to make money out of a certain, you know, like, for example, back in the day, it, a creative career wasn't considered a career that was very, was going to get you anywhere. And um, I remember having many conversations with people, luckily not my parents, because they were just like, we want you to do whatever makes you happy, which was, I'm so thankful for that. But other people I came across who just didn't consider the creative world as a place that you could survive and make money and make a living off. And look at the world around us now. Look at look at all the creatives and all the digital designers and, and Apple and all the icons and the apps and, and everything. You've got to have such a creative mind to, to be in work like that. And so my advice is just don't give up on your dreams and don't get talked out of it. Because if you really, really believe in something, you can do it. Beautiful. Oh, thank you so much for your time today, Louisa. It's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Louisa Seaton, freelance photographer and founder of Sacred Feminine Photography, which you can find at louisaseaton.com and also on Instagram. And we'll include the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>